Hello and welcome to the Fellowship Phase, an Adventures in Middle-Earth podcast. I'm Josh and that's Callum. We're going to give you inside information on how to find your own path through Tolkien's world. The lands extending from the Misty Mountains as far as the Kelduin are known as Wilderland. To earn such an ominous name, well, not only did the region until recently host the lair of a dragon, but also the forest of Mirkwood, home to many fell creatures, occupies a larger part of these lands. Wilderland has, however, changed significantly in recent years. Smaug, the dragon of Erebor, bane of the northern world, lies extinguished in the lake and the necromancer has been driven from his fortress of Dol Gadur in southern Mirkwood. Many peoples are reclaiming their lost lands. To the north, Durin's folk occupy once more the lonely mountain of Erebor, in the shade of which, below, the city of Dale is rebuilt by Northmen from its ruins. Close to this, the trading town of Eskarov, Lake Town, sits on the long lake with thriving trade to the woodland realm of elves, who lie within hidden halls dug under the northern eaves of Mirkwood. Across Mirkwood, near the ford of Carrick, on the river Anduin, the Bjornings, a folk of men, follow the lead of Bjorn the Skin Changer, while to the south, the settlements of the woodmen are again multiplying along the eaves of Mirkwood. Hello, Callum. Hello, Josh. What have we got planned to talk about today? Well, we started off last time talking a little bit about us and the game, and now maybe we'll talk about you, but not you, the character you. A character that isn't called you. What is your character called, Josh? Or your first character? We're going to talk about character creation. We did our session zero, and I think the next step is character creation. It's how most players probably interact with the game after that. It's certainly the bit in the rule book that comes after explaining the context of the game. I figure the best way to do this is if we perhaps run through my first Adventures Middle Earth character who started the game with us, and was also the first ever character I played. I've been DMing for a few years, but character, whose name is Theodric, um, was my first creation and first character I played. It's quite a nice memory. Did he have a surname? His name was Theodric of the Deepwood. Hmm. Yeah, uh, ironically, there was a, a Nilda Bjorning in the group who was much younger and was called Carhu the Elder. What, what was the Deepwood? I don't actually know what the Deepwood was. Well, uh, I think well, this will come up. It was not something that I had envisaged specifically what it was. It, it sounded evocative, and I thought that it would lend itself to role play as we went on. And it kind of did, because I thought of him as someone who was very much associated with the wild and the woods. But I don't think in-game or out-of-game we ever really established what it meant. 
So it just remains one of those slightly enigmatic things. Um, so perhaps if we run through the character creation, the way it's done in the book is maybe a good guide for other people for how they might do their first character or do simply a new character. And we can talk about any lessons that past Josh and Callum could have benefited from when we created Theodric and the other members of the party. Does that sound good? Yes. I'm just reading the, uh, the overview of character creation here. There's a nice little line, if you'll allow me to read again from the book. He had a strange feeling as a slow gurgling stream slipped by. His old life lay behind in the mist. Dark adventure lay in front. It really does set the scene, doesn't it? I knew that I needed a character who was about to set off on an adventure. Now, you invited me and the others, the other players to play. I immediately started envisaging which character I would play and felt a strange weight on my shoulders because it was going to be the first character I would ever play after years of DMing. And I felt I had so many loose ideas of what cool characters I could play you know, archetypes or tropes from films or cool things I'd seen other people do. So I kind of circled around a load of different things. And Theodric is what I settled on. And I think the easiest way to explain it is to give you a sense of how I envisaged him as a character, because that's how I did it. I kind of had a sense of the character. And then I went through the step-by-step -step process to make him. I don't know if that's how everyone does it. I think other people maybe start with the book and work up from there. But for me, I had a sense of who he was and what role he might play. I toyed around with a lot of things, something that was maybe more of an action adventurer or a, a roguish character, someone a bit sneaky. What I settled on though, was an older character who had already had quite a long life. I thought that was, interesting to kind of embed into the world that he'd already had a lot of experiences and he'd perhaps visited some of the places that we've been to so starting point was he was older and what i liked about that was that rather than his abilities strengthening and rather than his ability scores reflecting his beginning it was more that he was aging and so he was kind of on a downward curve and because of that i wanted to make sure that he was really good at some things which he'd learned over time but was maybe frailer than he had been in his youth. So I started with wanted him to be older, I wanted him to be wise, and I wanted him to be weak. And part of the rationale was I was the only person in our group, and I include you, Lord Mastering, who had played before. And I kind of in my head had the idea that he could sort of be a guide to the players and their characters at the same time. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's how I thought of him. Then I turned to the rule book to figure out how we would do that. So what's the first step in the rule book for creating characters? Cultures. Cultures. And this covers all of the playable cultures in the game. I'm loath to compare everything in the game to D&D because I think too much of tabletop RPGs get compared to D&D. However, it is based on the same system and character creation is almost exactly the same. So I think it's a fair comparison for this. Cultures replaced race or lineage in Dungeons and Dragons. 
So there are, uh, I think, around a dozen cultures, and there are more, I think, in some of the region guides, which mm. expand on it. Yeah, some of the region guides add extra cultures for player yeah. characters. And there's also, if you look around on the internet, you can find some homebrewed uh, additional cultures as well, some of which are really interesting. So some examples are hobbits, which is not particularly surprising. There are elves. There are riders from Rohan, dwarves. And then a lot of different men folk. So there are bardings from Lake Town. Lake Town, which always a unusual and interesting place, such an evocative name. I, I often come back to that. Other men, including men of Minas Tirith, uh, woodmen, you mentioned in your introduction. And the one that immediately captured my imagination was Bjornings. Bjorn is 100% my favourite character from The Hobbit. I would have loved if he'd spent more time at his house with the bees. I love when he appears later on. And I was completely drawn to Bjornings as a culture. Hmm. What do we know about the Bjornings, though? There's maybe more of a question for you. Yeah, I guess there's not a huge amount written about them in, in the various sources of lore, other than they were a group of people that followed Bjorn, who became more of a chieftain after his events in The Hobbit, where he's depicted as quite a, an isolated figure. And the other thing that we know is that in the events of Lord of the Rings later on, that there is various conflicts that go on in the north uh, regions of Middle-earth around about Dale and Erebor and Mirkwood. And that in those times, there is a figure called Grim Bjorn who leads the Bjornings and uh, fights uh, in that in that time, uh, and he was a chieftain of the of the Bjornings. So we know that they're around, so certainly survive through that time. And there's various sort of non-canonical uh, depictions of Bjornings and their their role um, in the world, but it's quite a open area. There's a lot of scope to to write your own stories, which is really exciting. I really liked that there was scope to tell those stories. I love Bjorn and I loved how evocative his life seemed in The Hobbit. He lived in isolation. He was wild and yet seemed very cultured and wise. Uh, he didn't kill animals. He was not a violent man, although he obviously was fearsome towards the goblins. Felt like there were a lot of layers to him. And I like the idea of being able to create a character that was somehow in his image because the book talks that his people are kind of in his image. So it was pretty surefire for me that was going to be a Bjorning. There are some suggested names in the book, which I liked some of. Theodric wasn't one of them, but there were a lot around it. So there was Theodard, Theodibert, Theodomir, and... Theodidabert is a great name. Theodibert. And I wasn't convinced. And I kind of played around with it a bit until I got to Theodric. I really like that. They all have by names. It gives some examples. The cloaked, the quick-witted, the quiet. And I wanted something a little enigmatic. So I went with Of the Deepwood. So Theodric of the Deepwood. Much like in 5th edition, picking a culture gives you a whole bunch of traits. So... Bjornings get an increase to their strength. Um, they also get proficiency in the intimidation skill because they are angry. 
and they can speak um, the common tongue of the Vale of Anduin is their, their language. You also get to pick a cultural virtue, which we'll come on to later, linked to your culture. So at the end of the process, I got to pick a Bjorning cultural virtue. For me, it was pretty easy to go with Bjornings. I don't think I even read that much about any of the other cultures. I kind of just dived into it, um, which meant that when I met the other players, a lot of it was completely new because I had no idea where the characters had come from. This bit was pretty easy. Yes. Um, we'll, we'll go on and maybe talk about the other cultures at uh, other points. Um, so that's the Bjorning culture. Uh, what's the next step on character creation? It is your class. This is where things became a little more difficult. I knew what sort of person Thedric was, and he could fit into several of these classes. Now, there are far fewer classes than there are in 5th edition. There are only six, some of which are ported directly over, others of which are an amalgamation of different classes. So there is sort of direct ported over. There's the Slayer, which is a barbarian, the Treasure Hunter, who is a rogue, and a warrior, which is a fighter. The three that are slightly murkier are the Warden, who I think is somewhere between a cleric and a bard. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah, I can say that. Yeah, it's got a kind of inspiration mechanics. Um, I, I always think of it as mostly like a bard because it's charisma-based. Yeah, very much a support player, support uh, class. There is the Wanderer. Now, the Wanderer is probably a class we'll end up talking about a lot during this because it is Adventures Middle-Earth's version of the Ranger. And whereas the Ranger is kind of the forgotten child of D&D, in this, the game is very structured around Rangers. And it is possibly the most powerful class. Certainly the one that I think engages with the specific Adventures Middle-Earth rules the most. Yeah, because adventures in Middle-earth is so focused on the journey and the Wanderer has so many benefits to, to journeying, it's it's huge. Because in D&D, you know, you, you don't often go into the nitty-gritty of journeys. So though Rangers have a lot of those abilities, it doesn't really come up. And it, particularly when you get to higher levels and you can just teleport or, you know, have other means of transportation, it, it, it does remove some of the uh, utility of that class. Uh, that said, I think with the updates to the Ranger class and, and more recent uh, source books for D&D, consensus is it's become a, a more, just slightly more balanced class that keeps up yes. with the other ones. More but enjoyable class? Maybe. I, I, I don't really know. Um, and then finally, the other class, the last class that's left is Scholar, which I guess is something like, it's hard <laughs> to say, it's, it's an intelligence, it's primary ability is intelligence. It's the weirdest one, and the reason I've left it, left it to last is because Theodric was a scholar. It's intelligence-based. It feels like it started life as a wizard, except in Tolkien's world and Adventures in Middle-earth. It's very low magic, so there's no spell casting involved. It feels like they started by saying, what would a wizard be like without any spells? Well, they'd be learned with books, and they'd be clever. They would be good at healing. So the scholar gets healing abilities. 
then there's a lot of stuff which doesn't really appear in D&D. They are in some ways similar to a, a almost almost like a, a diplomat. They're good with people. They've got elements of being charisma-based. Yeah, it's very strange. strange. There's elements of wizard, cleric, maybe bard, um, college of lore, bard. You know, yeah. it's got a lot of, of, of similarities. That was my first ever D&D character. It's really interesting. It's also got a bit higher hit points. So it's a, a hit dice of a D8. So it's not as uh, squishy, to use a technical term, sometimes um, the non-combat force classes can be. Um, you gain proficiency in light armor, simple weapons, uh, herbalism kit, choice of artisans tools, some saving throws, which is interesting because saving throws don't really come up in this because there's not really much magic. Um, no, it's very low magic. And uh, you gain quite a lot of skills. Medicine, lore, plus choose one from history, riddle, traditions, insight, investigation, nature, perception, and survival. So basically most of the skills. Um, and you'll notice that there's some skills in there that are not, that are, are different from standard fifth edition. And I, we'll come back in a later episode and speak to the uh, new skills and what they're for and how to use them and why they're quite cool. Um, so talk us through the scholar choice for Theodric. How did that work? Because you started saying that it wasn't really, it's not really your prototypical scholar bookworm. No, type. not at all. I looked at, unlike with the, culture where i was very set on bjorning from the off i really looked through a lot of the classes to mull it over and i think i probably took some inspiration from different ones he could probably have been a very similar character with a different build in a number of the classes i think he could have been a warden warden has a subclass which is called the counselor uh, which is the idea of someone who's very good with their words, almost like a diplomat or an ambassador at, at a low level. But in Tolkien's world, there was a lot of traveling to the halls of faraway lands and speaking to the lords there. I liked the idea of Theodric being intelligent, but in more of a kind of worldly way than a book way. So he was older and he traveled throughout Wilderland, not particularly adventurously or, or you know slaying goblins and, and orcs and fighting spiders but he'd traveled to different settlements and he knew people everywhere and he'd learned maybe a bit more about different cultures he'd picked up some sort of traveling tricks on the way i liked the idea of the scholar specialty master healer which is at a higher level you can really focus on healing and i liked that he would be a healer not really through academia, but more through experience. And he'd seen how the peoples of different lands treated wounds and, and cared for their people. And I liked that idea that he built up his knowledge that way. So he was a scholar, but I think scholar kind of the name hints at it being a very bookish library driven class. And that's not how I kind of realized him. I think he could have been other classes, I chose scholar and I wanted to be a, a master healer. And that's the, the approach that I took with him. Mm. The healing in this is quite different because in D&D, healing is often done by spells. It's not really an intrinsic thing. It's quite strong to start off with. Yes. And then each of the classes has specialties, which are sort of like subclasses, which usually unlock about level three. And the master healer is a really interesting one. 
because um, I mean, it's maybe a good point to mention this is that in Adventures in Middle Earth, it is very hard to get rests. Um, so a short rest is generally a, a night's rest, like a whole night in a safe space. And out in the wilds, there's not often many safe spaces. And a long rest is, is a week's rest in a place. So it becomes, it's sort of like gritty realism in, in D&D. It is quite hard to, to get rests, particularly the way that I run the game. Maybe that's on me. So healing becomes even more important because it's not always you can guarantee you'll get a rest. And unlike D&D or a high, high magic RPG, healing is not like you're back to full strength and you know your wounds have totally magically knitted over. It's much more sort of triaging and you'll use some herbs and bandages to kind of keep someone going. We certainly in our experience found with our healing, you rarely heal someone back up to their full hit points. You're normally topping them up a little bit so that you can get through to the next rest. Mm. And I think that's in keeping with the journeys that Tolkien describes. They're, you know, they're rough. It's a tough land and they, they suffer a little on the way. And Theodric used his experience to patch up travelers on the road. That was his job, his, his role. And that's why in the end, I, I plumped for Scholar. Hmm. Yes. He's, <laughs> um, and with each, um, each class has what's called a shadow weakness. Um, so what's a shadow weakness for a Scholar? I think it's lure of secrets for a Scholar. All the classes have a different shadow weakness. And we'll maybe talk about shadow weaknesses in the future. It's to do with something called shadow points, which is a sort of corruption mechanic. Uh, which is really interesting and ties into what we were talking in the first episode about basically everybody being good and slowly being corrupted by the shadow. Um, I think that's one of my favorite parts of the game. I absolutely love it. And I had almost no awareness of it when we started. So the shadow weakness, which is set by the class, was not something that really factored into my decision-making at all. Like, it was just something that was kind of a given that I noted down in my character sheet. I was interested in the abilities and it was like, oh, I'll pop lure of secrets on there hmm. it became relevant later on yes very relevant uh maybe not so much to theodric but uh, to some of the other classes <laughs> and characters so what well, you've chosen your class you've chosen a scholar you're all equipped you've got some uh, equipment uh, proficiencies that's given you and you've got your starting abilities so at level one you're gonna uh, have hands of the healers you've got healing ability news from afar which allows you to hear tidings from distant events and get rumors and knowledge that the lore master has to give to you oh you can add plus five i don't think we've ever used that bit the rules um <laughs> oops <laughs> every, every day is a school day yeah it says here once per venturing phase you can add plus five to one of these active ability checks uh, when you're learning about something i don't think that's ever come up and tongues of many people, which is that you you know a little bit of every language, which fits in really well with Daedric's, um story of having been out and about. Yes, exactly. That's one of the things that attracted me to it, as was news from afar, which I, in my head, role-played that he had a lot of contacts of people that he'd met, even just on a very casual acquaintance basis on the road and in somewhere at a campsite by the road. And because of that, he just instinctively picked up and attracted information um, to him. And he had, he knew a little bit of everything. 
without ever being an expert in any of it. He was just quite well connected. The next thing, the big thing, everyone's favorite thing, I rolled the dice to choose or to determine my ability scores. Now, this is the thing that I think is most enjoyable about the game is rolling the dice. And probably the most enjoyable part of character creation is when you get to roll the dice and assign your scores. However, I think it's worth talking about. I know that people are very divided on the best way of getting your ability scores. So your ability scores are those six basic traits that you have, your strength, your dexterity, your constitution, your wisdom, your intelligence, and your charisma, which define everything that you do. And there are several ways that you can determine them. The very traditional way is to roll dice and randomize it. Going out of vogue, probably. Is that fair to say? And the other option is what's called points by, where effectively you can build the scores up. And the higher you go, the more points it requires to bump you up. Can be a little controversial. Yes, it's it's inherently random, and there's a lot of discussions on Reddit about, oh well, you know, you roll, and then some people roll really highly, and some people roll really lowly, and that creates a disparity in the group. So then some people might be like, oh well, my ability scores are lower, so my character is inherently weaker. So then you start going into, oh well, you set an upper limit, so maybe your combined total scores after rolling is more than eighty. You ask them to re-roll or reduce them. If the lower limit is too low and you ask them to put the numbers up, we started out and we rolled characters uh, for these. And I think since I've come round to points by just because it's just so much easier. And I don't need to be as, as the GM or lower master thinking about all that. Um, and it just makes this level playing field. But I do miss the fact that um, there is this sort of randomness and some of the funniest characters or best characters you've seen have had really crazy um, ability scores. I do remember I, I made a D&D character. I think it was my second character. And uh, I didn't know how we, I couldn't remember how to do it. And for some reason, <laughs> some crazy reason, I thought it was just roll a D20. So you, as in, you, you just rolled a dice and yeah. that was the number that you assigned to yeah. the... Quite that extreme. was Gulas. He, he had, he had, in reflecting on it, it shouldn't have been, I shouldn't have been able to play him because his intelligence yeah, really, like it shouldn't have worked four or five or something, um, which is not enough to, to function um, as a as character. But, you know, there, there's lots of different ways of doing it. And uh, I don't think there's a right or a wrong way. It's just what works for you and your group. We did, what did we do? We did 4d6 and remove and the, drop the lowest drop which the is lowest. the most common dice roll it's a, a kind of a compromise between it being random so generating a good spread but by averaging out d6s and dropping the lowest you you keep the curve in a kind of more manageable yeah. way and yeah a, a characters created more recently I've, I've suggested we do point by and that that's worked fine it's just a bit easier i think so that's you rolling your dice well I did roll my dice. The thing is, I, I actually did and I wanted to because uh, this will probably come up during the podcast. I, I'm definitely not a min-maxer. I find the most fun in d and I think, is when it's tough and the risk of failure is the thing that I enjoy the most about the game. I think the story 
is most fun when things kind of go wrong. I, I don't know if that's a particularly common attitude. It certainly isn't in our group. Uh, I enjoy it, though. And I was keen from the outset that Theodric would have some weaknesses because I think that it would be fun to role play them. And for me, it was that he was older. And Bjornings are naturally very strong, and he gets a bonus to his strength from his culture. So I wasn't going to dial that down. What I thought would be fun is if he was much less dexterous. He was he moved more slowly. He wasn't very stealthy. He walked with a stick. And the walking with a stick was actually slightly deceptive. He didn't need it. It was actually his weapon, but he presented himself as being slightly more feeble than he was. Mm, that's a really unique idea in Lord of the Rings. Sorry, that sounds really mean. <laughs> Look, I think stealing good ideas... It's a lovely scene with Gandalf, so I think it's fine to, to emulate it a bit. Just borrowing uh, borrowing good ideas. I mean, it's Tolkien's world. Let's, you know, don't push back against the tide here, Cal. That was the rationale behind me rolling, was if you do points by, it's hard to get low scores. It's, it's hard to get high scores. It balances everything out. Rolling, I was able to get some low scores and some high scores. I put the low score into his dexterity. I think he had an eight in total, which meant he always had a minus one modifier to all his dexterity. And I bumped up his intelligence and wisdom to probably higher than they could have been points by wise, because I felt that whereas his physical health had deteriorated, his, you know, he was still very mentally sharp and he'd learned a lot. So, the, the imbalance, I think, reflected the fact that he was not just some newbie adventurer. He'd done a lot, and he'd suffered a bit, and he'd learned a lot. So I enjoyed rolling the dice. But I do recognise it can be a little bit controversial. And that's how I got to the ability scores. Hmm. So you had a quite uh, interesting spread of abilities, certainly not min-maxed, and focused less on combat um, abilities. What was the next step in creating characters? So you've got your culture, you've got your class, and then you've got your ability scores and you add on your bonuses to that from your culture. You've got all your proficiency set up. And then we move on to background. Background is adds a bit of flavor and helps with the role play. It gives you a few little benefits as well. And in Adventures Middle Earth, the backgrounds are really good at giving you a sense of what's driving you in a world that is largely good, but is being steadily corrupted by the shadow. There are a whole bunch of backgrounds available, and I toyed with a lot of them. I think I actually did read through these while I was trying to decide on my class as well, because I wanted to kind of a balance between them. In the end, I was very happy to settle on the final one in the book, which is world weary. It felt in keeping, the idea being someone who had seen the world, who'd been out and about, who had become perhaps a little jaded with it. I played Theodric that he had that kind of maybe lost a little bit of faith. He was quite a positive person, but in his darker moments, he, I think in contrast to some of the other players who started as young, feisty adventurers and played into the naivety of seeing the big bad world, Theodric had a kind of sigh every so often because he knew that things were not as idealistic as they hoped they were i wonder actually i'm just reading back through them now and one of the other ones is emissary of your people and uh, i think i vaguely remember because when we were building characters i 
phones and we just spoke because we couldn't meet in person spoke on the phone and and we I talked for everybody the the rules and I had discussions and I'm pretty sure that you were having a we did discuss whether you went emissary of your people yep yep that was one of them and that played into the sort of diplomatic thing that maybe actually he had been quite active in being sent out from the lands of the Bjornings to to visit places and carry news and forge alliances there's an element of it which still plays into world weary each of the backgrounds gets a feature and the feature I got from World Weary was seasoned connections. And that was through the course of a long career, you've met many people and made friends throughout the land. Specifically, it's rare to enter a town or a settlement and not know at least one important person. Usually you could call on these for specific aids and favors. Mm-hmm. Now, the book stresses, and I think we discussed this as well, it shouldn't be overpowered. It shouldn't be that Theodric knows the most important people absolutely everywhere and can just call them for favors because that would just give him a role-playing superpower it was more that when we visited a new place it might be Thedric who was able to introduce the party to an old contact who would be a little bit helpful and could give them a bit of a steer again it played into that sense that Thedric was a way of grounding the characters in the world at least that's how I saw it and we also get um, some more proficiencies from it. So you got history and insight from World Weary. And I, if I remember correctly, I feel like Fedric rolled a lot of insight checks. That's probably his yes. go-to check. Um, he was very people-focused. And I think that probably plays into, if you don't mind me saying, you as a, as a player, you tend to go for the, the, the charisma-based characters, the, the people characters. And I guess everybody does that to an extent. You sort of drift, whether you mean to or not, towards characters that focus on a part of the game that you're most interested in and yes you're certainly uh and the whole group is actually in terms of a game it's very role play focused there's a quite a lot yeah like serious role play and um you know it's not hack and slash it's um a lot of consequence and really interesting discussions that have come out of it i'm not sure that we intended to set out like that but we just i got we all got really invested in it i guess and I really liked that the direction the game took. And now that comes after having not had a session zero. That's something we talked about in our last episode, yeah. which is something that that's the sort of thing you would discuss. You would discuss, is it going to be a really role-play focused game, that quite a reflective game or a moral game, or is it going to be more about rolling the dice in combat? We didn't discuss it in advance. It happened quite organically. And it turns out we all have about the same interest in these things. Giving you a flavor, perhaps. So when you choose a background you have to choose a, a certain rolling tables that you can roll on to get qualities, much like you do in backgrounds in, in D&D. Uh, so you choose a distinctive quality, a specialty, a hope, and a despair. Um, do you have those to hand for... Do you, or do you, you probably just remember, don't you? Um, they kind of guide your role play more than the rules. They don't, I believe, have any, have any mechanical impact on the game. They're more something that's played out between the player and the lore master. And I lent on some of them much more heavily than others. Definitely the despair, which I picked. Most of my friends and allies are gone. It's no longer my world. And that was the idea that Theodric was older. He was coming to the end of his adventuring life. A lot of the contacts he had had either died or retired. And that he his time in the world was ending. And he kind of wanted one last adventure on the road which was his motivation to go out. He was quite a hopeful person, though, and focused on friendship 
So his hope was, I know the value of true friends and I wouldn't travel with someone I couldn't trust. So he may not have had many trusted allies still in the adventuring life, but those he did, he wanted to set out. Okay, so, and just to run through a couple of other backgrounds, there's not a list, is there? It's quite a lot of them. They're really interesting. There are a lot. I think they're good. So there's Loyal Servant, Doomed to Die, which... Uh, we had somebody playing. Driven from home, emissary of your people. Fallen scion, um, and there's some optional rules. So there's an optional lost scion, black shield. I like that idea because the lost scion was the idea that you were maybe of noble birth or from an important family, and that had kind of was disappearing from the world for some reason. It was up to the players to decide. And that was what your motivation was, that you were from this once kind of powerful situation. And the Black Shield kind of option was that you kept that secret. So the default is that people would know that you were from a noble family. But it had optional rules that maybe you kept that to yourself. So it was driving you as a character and the other members of the party didn't know about it, which I thought was quite fun. The Harold, and there's an optional Harold, the storyteller, which is cool. That was another one I think I contemplated for Theodric because I, th he, I thought of him and played him as a storyteller. Oh, I don't think I've read that one. I've, I've only ever created one. I've only ever played as a player in one Adventure in Middle-earth short campaign, and it was a lot of fun. I've not really read through the character creation stuff in that much depth before. Next, we've got Lure of the Road. The Magician. The Magician's interesting because... It's a very low fantasy, no, it's not a low fantasy world, Josh, that's clearly nonsense. It is the fantasy world. It's a very low magic fantasy world, really. Even the most powerful magicians and spellcasters like Gandalf and Galadriel, their magic is, is fairly minor in comparison to a lot of other high fantasy. So the inclusion of the magician is very, very low level magic. It's more tricks. It's more the way that Gandalf's portrayed in the Shire that he can do magic tricks and has fireworks. I just had an idea of making a Hobbit player character who's the magician, who's like take on that mythos of Gandalf and goes around the Shire entertaining, <laughs> but is, is you know, a bit strange and um, not not really well thought of. So maybe leaves the Shire to, to practice magic elsewhere. That's a, a slight sidebar. So uh, the Oath Sworn, I really like that one. You swear an oath to a, a place or a person. The Reluctant Adventurer. So here's Bilbo. Yep. So most of them, most of them have an optional thing. So the Ulf's one had the devoted friend, a seeker of the lost, and then we have world weary, which is the last one. And world weary's got an optional one for elves, which is the call of the sea, which is very, very thematic. Very in keeping them talking. I, I, they just they're so. I don't know. I I find them much more inspiring when I'm making a character, thinking about a character, just reading through them there compared to D&D, which is much more based on facts. It's not as... I don't know how you feel about that. I think the rules for D&D are obviously very expansive and encourage them being used in a lot of different settings. You could play mm. in a high fantasy setting in the Forgotten Realms. You could play a very gothic game like Curse of Strad. You could play... You know, there's new rules coming out for Spelljammer where you play in space. So the backgrounds are quite... They're almost quite a blank slate, like you're yes, an actor, which gives you charisma benefit, but it doesn't really give you any flavor. And I think it's intentional because they want to leave it open that yes. you as the player could put flavor on. 
Whereas something I really enjoy about Adventures in Middle Earth is that all of that's kind of baked in, that the tone of the Tolkien books is reflected in everything. So like you say, reluctant adventurer, that, that is Bilbo. That is playing the idea of someone who gets dragged along to adventure and then becomes good at it. You should definitely get starting equipment to a fancy handkerchief. <laughs> the World Willy Elves link is really good as well, I think. That idea of them going to the sea. Yes. Right. The only character I've made was a, a high elf of Rivendell, uh, which is uh, in the uh, Rivendell region guide. Uh, that was a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, so we've done culture, class, background, got your ability scores. There's one last thing to choose. And that is your virtue, which I love. I love the virtues. They're almost like feats, I think, is the closest they come to. Yes, they are almost like feats. And they fit in that way because during character levelling up, at some points you can choose to level up by taking another virtue. Yeah, you can but take them instead of a instead of yeah. ability score improvement. But everyone starts with a virtue. Now, I know some people in D&D play that way, that everyone gets a free feat at level one, which in itself can be quite controversial. That kind of screws up variant human as an option. But that's a whole other conversation. In this, everyone gets a cultural virtue, which means they're limited to ones tied to the culture. So again, it's very flavoursome. Bjornings uh, have four to choose from, and I had a good look through them all. The choice I made, I was delighted with, and it turned out to be very helpful. Options, uh, brothers to bears. So this is the idea that Bjorn is a skin changer and is in tune with nature. It gives you abilities at night. You have advantage on perception checks, for instance. You take on that sense of almost a sort of beast-like quality. There's the night goer, um, and you can slip into a dreamlike state and actually leave your body in spirit form to travel the lands, which is incredibly cool and very evocative of Bjorn as a character. There is the skin coat which if you're not wearing any armor, you are resistant to non-magical damage. Incredibly powerful. I don't think I've ever read that one. I know. Most damage is... I haven't read this since I created Adric. Most damage in the game is non-magical piercing damage. Like, that's basically anyone who ever shoots you with an arrow, you would be resistant to that. That's huge. That's ridiculous. I've only just really paid attention to that I, I think I must have read that and thought this makes no sense with Theodric an old man walking the road why would he be resistant to goblins shooting him nothing well, could withstand him and no weapon seemed to bite upon him well, there's always like a little quote at the beginning of each section in this yeah I really like it so the quote for the last one the making of these was one of his secrets but honey was in them as in most of his foods Delicious. I would I would love to have a, a life where honey was in most of my foods. That would be amazing. Well, the virtue is twice-baked honey cakes, which is what I picked. Now, I picked it because I thought that seems in keeping, the idea that he travels on the road. He carries these, these baked goods. I thought maybe he would give them as gifts, trade them. He was, in a way, not rude. He was a bit of an emissary of the Bjorning people, and the Bjornings loved and they loved honey and they loved the, the honey cakes. So twice baked honey cakes. Chose it more for flavour than rules. Turned out it was incredibly powerful. The idea was that they were very nutritious 
and that traveling with food in Adventures Middle Earth is difficult, which is true in Tolkien's world. He talks about rations a lot. And you I mean you've obviously you've got Sam and Frodo with their lambus bread. <laughs> it's quite a big scene in the films and in the books. With this, the twice baked honey cakes mean, and it's a single sentence in this these rules, and I didn't appreciate how important it was. When you're on a journey, in other words, most of the game, you and your fellow travelers may remove the first level of exhaustion you acquire. Now, in DD, exhaustion is reasonably difficult to get and reasonably easy to get rid of because mm. you can rest quite regularly. In Adventures of Middle Earth, am I fair in saying this, Cal, that a lot of the journey events cause exhaustion? That's mm. one of the, the, the kind of the penalties. Yeah, it comes up a lot. There's a lot of things you're reading on the journey. There's journey, the tables for journey events, which are, are, are awesome. Uh, and they'll be like, if they fail the check, they get a exhaustion level. And at the beginning, I was like, yep, yeah, exhaustion level, here you go. You know, didn't think too much of it. But now, particularly in the last adventure we did, which was which was huge, the last journey, so many sessions. A point of exhaustion is massive. Yeah. And the first one gives you disadvantage in all your ability checks, which immediately makes you half as good. Not half as good. It makes you significantly less powerful. I feel like there's a line in there somewhere. Maybe we'll come up with that when we cut the talk about exhaustion. So for the exhaustion... Uh, there's six levels. One is disadvantage on ability checks. Two is speed halved. Three is disadvantage on attack rolls and saving throws, which is horrible. Four is hit point maximum halved. Five is speed reduced to zero. And six is death. So it becomes really punishing very quickly. And once you have a couple of levels of exhaustion, you can get into really tricky situations, which mean that you might get more. And I picked these honey cakes because I thought they sounded cool. I didn't appreciate that basically every adventure we'd go on, you would roll a journey event and give us the that doer face that was like, you get a point of exhaustion. And I would very annoyingly be like, no, we ignore the first point of exhaustion. Yeah, and then you went off and got ponies at one point. <laughs> and it's like, and we ignore it again. <laughs> it became quite difficult to challenge um, us early on, I think. But, um Yes, I plumped for twice-baked honey cakes because they sounded delicious and they turned to be very powerful. Yeah, I I spent quite a lot of time thinking what would twice-baked honey cakes be like? What what would they? Because they're in the the end written in the Hobbit. You talk, you give some some when you leave. Yeah, and I, I, you know, are they sort of like baklava, like really rich and soaked in honey, or are they sort of like? Uh, biscotti, like cantucci, uh, those hard biscuits, because they're twice baked. I thought of them as more biscuit-like because they travelled well and he had them for longer periods of time. So I thought of them as being part of the reason they were twice baked was that they let the Bjornings take them mm. on a longer journey. That makes sense. I that was of, just my head. I think that makes right. sense, but I want them to be clever because... I just, <laughs> I just And they're so honey-rich flavour. Oh, damn, I really want some now. Yeah, but, uh, well, I remember I gave you that Tolkien cookbook. Yes, there's a recipe there's, for them in that. There's a recipe for them in that. No, it's not official, obviously, but tasty. Mm, yeah, I've made a couple of things from that. Oh, I'm distracted. <laughs> You're hungry now. Yes. This is why we should eat before podcasting. Yes. Okay, oh, there's so many amazing cultural virtues we could talk about this for ages i think it's a nice way to go through each character so maybe 
what we'll do is we'll come back, uh, maybe not the next couple of episodes, but we'll come back and go through some other characters and uh, talk through different cultures, their cultural virtues, and the different classes um, as we go on, because there's there's a lot in there. I know we said that some of them are similar to D&D, but they really take on a different um, life in this game, particularly because there isn't, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff about, you know, martial classes versus casters. And that is a constant discussion, you know, uh, martial classes are underpowered, uh, casters are so powerful, there's a lot of abilities. But because there isn't that in this game, it changes it so much. So suddenly your fighter is, or sorry, warrior in this is really impactful and can actually have a lot of battlefield control just by sitting there with a high armor class, um, having extra attacks or that action surge for that pivotal move is... Yeah, it's really it's really different um, and so much more grounded. I think the fact there are only six classes, and that's something I don't think is expanded on at all. I don't think any of the region guides add extra classes. They add extra cultures and um, virtues, but there's no extra classes. Yeah, there's there's some homebrew uh, classes out there which um, I've occasionally like mentioned and offered to players if they're leveling up or considering multi-classing, uh, but nobody has yet used any of them i think it's interesting there are only six because in dnd there are far more and they introduce more i think it's very deliberate part of the game design because they're even at the most extreme a lot of them are quite similar they still have that sense of tolkien adventurer with a cloak on the road someone who's quite good in the wild someone who's generally quite a good person there's no massive magical difference between them health-wise there's not that much difference the classes are quite similar, but what's really different is the sheer number of backgrounds and the sheer number of cultural virtues, which mean it really encourages role play, I think. Mm. Your characters are very grounded in a cultural way and have a real personality from the character creation. And I think that's quite different from kind of vanilla 5e. Yeah, just thinking about in our game. So we've we started off, we had two scholars. Later on, we ended up with two warriors and then later on after that we ended up having two wanderers but it never and i think that's the only time that we've had double ups but even when we had them the two characters always felt distinct and different you know there wasn't that much overlap because they were just so different and they often had different uh, specialties or even when they had the same specialty they there was a lot of just parts of their character creation, which meant that they were quite distinct. I think as well, the the way the, the backgrounds and the virtues and the cultures really encourage you to flesh out your character from the start, mm. because it's a world that the players know. We talked about this a bit last time, that unlike a lot of homebrew campaigns where you would be learning as you go what the world is like, what the cultural difference is, what's the landscape like, who are the people... Most players in this will totally know and have a good sense of the differences between the dwarves and the elves and the Bjornics. And that means that you can get really fleshed out really early on about who they are. And I think you're right. I played a scholar who was uh, an old, kind of cheerful, but world-weary Bjornic in the party. And we'll talk about the party composition next time. We had another character called Torald who is a scholar. He was a really young man setting out for the first time, and he was a bookish scholar. 
he was the complete opposite of Theodric. And even though we were the same class from the beginning, the characters never felt alike to me. I never felt like when we were playing, I was treading on Torvald's toes, mm. nor did I ever really feel like I wasn't getting to have fun as Theodric because Torvald was doing something instead. Yeah, and you had different proficiencies because of the way that you'd chosen your skill, and your skills were, were very... There was some overlap in, like, medicine and stuff, but it, the way you role-played it as well it was a very different type of medicine, and there was actually really inter- interesting interactions there at points where you could you could say, like, well, I'm approaching the medicine. Like, you know, obviously in D&D, like, sometimes people fail a check and someone else says, can I have a go? And, it, you know, it's important to try not to have the description. And this was really easy because you could say you know, well, I maybe have seen this remedy done somewhere else and I've got some herbal things. And then Torwood could be like, well, actually, I've read a book on this or I've seen papers on this or, or studied this in the library. It's really interesting. I think we've gone f- through character creation for, for Theodric. Yeah, we have. I think that's the way that I made Theodric, thinking back very fondly to it. He's still my favourite character ever created. I loved playing him. He was definitely not perfect, and I was learning as I was going. But creating him and playing him was so much fun. And hopefully is a good example of going through all the steps, the choices you can make. And if you can grab the player's guide, there's so much content in there, flavour in there for you to build your own character Mm -hmm. and uh, get ready to set out on the road. No emails except on party business. And comments, suggestions, and questions to the fellowship phase at gmail.com. The long year turns to its close. Much we have accomplished these last seasons. Our fellowship disbands, but is not broken, and we will return. On the next episode of the fellowship phase.